Turn your Bibles to 1 John 2. We're going to look at verses 28 through 310. 1 John 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. Well, I, I stand here this morning as a changed man. As of yesterday, January 17th, 12.07 a.m., I am a grandfather. I know. All of you are thinking, there is no way that he's old enough to be a grandfather. And I thank you for those kind, those kind thoughts. Um, and it's Father's Day, so this is a great day to be a father and, and a gra- grandfather. And we are grateful to our Father who has, has blessed us all with a son, and he's blessed us all with families that we are able to enjoy ourselves. 1 John 2, 28 through 3.10. As I see it, I've got two things working against me with this particular text. So let me, let me tell you what is working against us with this text, and then we'll jump into the text and see the, the wonders that it reveals about the coming of Christ. So th- the first thing is it's a text about the coming of Christ. So th- this is not, this is no fault of my parents, but I grew up fearing the return of Christ. And that's largely because the way it was preached all my years growing up and going to camps where it was preached was that it is something to be feared, that you better be ready when Christ returns. And then what would be pressed in upon me was, can I really know that I'm ready? And because of the way it was presented to me, I, I never felt ready. And then, um, and then a, a different issue related to the, the second coming of Christ is, and, and, and this, is, this is about me, so I'm, I'm not saying this is about other people, this is about me too, is, is that I don't hear a lot of talk and I don't say much when I'm talking with others about the return of Christ. I just don't. And I don't, I'm trying to recall, when's the last conversation that I had with someone where the coming of Christ was talked about? In very positive terms, yes, but at all. So I, I, I've, I've, I've looked at that situation that, of my life and the conversations I have had and not had and ask myself, why do I think that's the case? It's, it's not because I don't love Jesus. That's not it. If, if you preach to me Jesus, what he did for me through his life, what he did through me, for me through his death, what he did for me through his resurrection, what he is doing for me 
in his ascension as the one who intercedes for me, if you preach that to me, here's what my heart's going to do. It's going to run to that Jesus. But for some reason, when it's the coming of Christ, my knee-jerk reaction is to go, I'm not really looking forward to that. So the question is, why? Why might that be the case? And, and here's why I think I historically have, have struggled with that emotionally when it comes to the coming of Christ. In 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, Paul is looking back over his life. He's coming to the end of his life, and he, and he, and he writes this. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, For I am re- already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So he knows his death is on the horizon. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, for me, I think, it's his, I think this is a, a struggle because the coming of Christ was not consistently presented to me within the overwhelming context of the good news of the gospel. So when the coming of Christ was presented to me, it was not presented within the beautiful, striking context of the good news of the gospel of what Jesus has already done for me. And this is what he's going to do for me. So that's the first reason that I think our text is working against us this morning, at least for me. The second is our text for this morning is probably the scariest in the book of 1 John. So when people hear that I have preached through 1 John before, so I did it with our high school and college students, when people hear that I have preached through the book of 1 John, and then I lay out my approach for how I understand 1 John, Occasionally, someone will say, well, yeah, but your approach can't possibly account for 1 John 3, 4 to 10. And I understand why someone and a few people have said that very thing. Your approach doesn't really account for why John says what he says in chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. Now, if you're not familiar with chapter 3 yet, you're wondering what in the world is John saying there, and we're going to get there pretty quickly. If you were to ask me, what banner would I hang over John's first epistle that should inform everything that we understand within the epistle, it's the banner that John himself is authorized. First John 5, 13, we've read this every week. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So he says, I write these things to you who already believe in the resurrected Christ, and I'm writing these things in order that 
you might be assured that you do indeed know the Father. So that has got to be what governs the way we handle this particular text. John's objective was not to scare, but to assure. So whatever text you're going into, we've got to realize, okay, John's objective with this text is not to scare us. His objective is not to scare the church. His objective is not to scare those who are trusting Christ. That's not his objective. His objective, even in the the hard, the difficult text, his objective is to assure. So the question is, what is John actually doing with this particular text? So we have a little work to do this morning. And I think if we do this work, we're going to see the sunrise of the good news in what John writes here. So we're going to hang our text on three words that are going to serve as pegs. So I have three pegs, and then we're going to hang a portion of the text on each of those pegs. The first is counterfeit. That's the first peg, counterfeit. The second is confidence. And the third is cherished. Counterfeit, confidence, and cherished. So let's read our text for this morning. First John 2, 28 through 3.10. And now, little children, abide in him, in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of, of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes... In him purifies himself even as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So because of how this particular text is sometimes misunderstood, I want to begin with the hard part. And that is chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And we're hanging that on the peg counterfeit. 
counterfeit. So John, John is giving a test. But the purpose of this text is actually to make it obvious to his readers that they are actually the ones who know the Father. Look at, look at verse 10. By this, it is evident. So mark that word. By this, it is obvious. Who are the children of God? And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not do or practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, he concludes this section by saying that the test is given to make it obvious that his readers are indeed children of the Father. But the way this text is sometimes interpreted becomes the occasion for Christians to wonder, well, do I really know the Father? So it, it often obscures certainty rather than making the certainty obvious. So it's almost as if John wrote it this way, by this it is made unclear who are the children of God. That's not what John's doing. But the way I've heard this text preached in the past makes that rephrasing, rewording of verse 10 seem like it would work. By this, it is made unclear that we are the children of God. But John is aiming for certainty. John, the Apostle John, is aiming for clarity. He's not aiming to obscure our vision, our understanding, our certainty of whether or not we are the children of God. So let's put verse 10 right there at the front and say, whatever we do with this text, we know we're handling it well if it gives us certainty that we are indeed the children of the Father. So let me, let me briefly connect this with what we did last week. So the, the secessionists, the deconversionists, so those who were formerly a part of the church, visible, vocal members who left the church, rejected the apostolic gospel, left the visible church, and were now trying to deceive those who remained within the church, they were claiming, number one, to know the Father without Christ. And number two, they were claiming not to struggle with sin. So they, they did not have sin, chapter 1, verse 6, and they did not commit sin, chapter 1, verse 10. So their, their heretical understanding of knowing God profoundly impacted the way that they lived. That's what happens. If you have a heretical understanding of the gospel, a heretical understanding of how you know the Father, then of course, it's going to bleed into how you live religiously. And that's exactly what, what happened here. So if, if you don't align yourself with 
the gospel and the clarity of the gospel, if you're not aligned with the clarity of the gospel, receiving the clarity of the gospel, then you will not be aligned with the other parts of Scripture. You will reinterpret things within reality that do not square with what the Scriptures actually teach. And we see that happening in our culture all over the place. And many deconversionists who have left the church are redefining certain things about life that we hold very dear and the Scriptures are very clear on. So when we get to chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, which really is the climax of our text, John emphasizes that true knowledge of the Father. Right, listen to this. We get to chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. John emphasizes that true knowledge of the Father as revealed in the resurrected Son and to be fully realized when Christ returns fundamentally transforms our present lives. If, you, if, if we are aligned with the clarity of the apostolic gospel, what happens then is it transforms the way that we live presently, day in and day out, Monday to Saturday. So 1 John 3, 2 and 3 reads, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, has not yet been revealed to us. But we know that when he appears, when the resurrected Messiah is revealed to us physically, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And in verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. So I'm I'm not going to develop verse 3 here in this particular sermon this morning, but if you're inclined to do so, maybe it's something that you could reflect upon in shepherding groups this afternoon. How, how, How should the good news of the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, the revealing of Christ with our physical eyes, how might that renew the way that we live each day as believers? So how does the prospect of the transforming return of the resurrected Christ change the way that we live now? Okay, now we're going to go into the hard part of, of this text here. And we're going we're gonna to get in the exegetical weeds so that when we come out the other side of the weeds, we'll see the wonders of the gospel. So weeds first, then wonders. Weeds, yes, and then, then wonders. So we have a cluster of, of challenging questions here. Here's one. What does John mean in verse 4 when he says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. So what what does John mean by practice sin? Second question, when John says in verse 6, no one who abides in Christ sins, 
is he suggesting sinless perfection? So both of those questions are tied together. And what what we've got to do is answer them very carefully and contextually. This is where we're getting into the to the weeds. So let me let me answer the second question because it the answer to that actually answers the first as well. Is John advocating for sinless perfection in the Christian life? Answer no. John himself, as we considered last week, has already argued against the very idea of sinlessness, right? So in John 1, 6-10, John argues that what characterizes those who have fellowship with the Father, which in, in John's mind, fellowship with the Father, fellowship is synonymous with salvation. If you have salvation, you have fellowship with the Father. If you have fellowship with the Father, you have salvation. So, when John begins to answer this particular question, what is he, what is he saying? Is he, is he saying that sinless perfection is possible? Is he saying that sinless perfection is necessary for the Christian? Now, when, when answering this question now, We've, we've got to consider not just the terms, the words that John uses, but actually how he uses them. Not just the words that he writes, but how he actually uses the words, the terms that he, he writes. So when, when considering how John uses the terms, we've got to be guided by his, his pastoral concern on the one hand, and on the other hand, we've, we've got to be guided by what he's actually arguing. So he has pastoral concern. He never throws the pastoral concern out. And he's always been arguing for, for something. So let's see what, what John is doing here. So John's argument, if you look at verse 4, hinges on a very specific, particular understanding of sin. One that is characterized by the term lawlessness. See that in verse 4? So his, his focus, John's focus, is not on sin in general. It's not even on habitual sin. Other places in Scripture, we can talk about habitual sin. That's not what John's talking about here. He's, he's talking about a very particular kind of sin. So if I were translating verse 4, I probably would not have used the word lawlessness. I don't know what word I would have used. I probably would have put it in a phrase. Because when I see the word lawlessness, you know what my mind immediately goes to? It goes to the law, the breaking of the law. It's not what John's talking about here. So nowhere in the epistle or 2 John or 3 John does he reference the law. So that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about sin is breaking the law. It's not in his, it's not in his mind. 
So the, the, the Greek word here is anomia. Anomia. And it only, only occurs here in 1 John. It doesn't occur in 2 John or 3 John. So he only uses it once. And so if we're to understand what anomia means, we've got to look at how it's used other places in Scripture. So if you go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only Gospel writer that uses the word is Matthew. And every time Matthew uses it, he's using it with reference to false prophets and others who oppose Christ and God's kingdom. And it's always in the context of the last days or the final judgment. So every time Matthew uses anomia, which the ESV translates lawlessness, it's always with reference to false teachers in the last days or in the final judgment who have opposed Christ and his kingdom. So contextually, this this way of understanding, if this is what John is doing, and this is how John understands it, this way of understanding lawlessness is really, really helpful in opening up the text for us. So earlier in chapter 2, verse 18, John writes, children, it is the last hour. So the last period of time before Christ returns. Children, it is the last hour. And you have, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So what we understand in 1 John so far is who are those Antichrists who have come? It's the deconversionists. It's the secessionists. It's those who have abandoned the apostolic gospel and rejected the visible church. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? Jesus is the resurrected Christ. That's the liar who denies this. This, he says, is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. So their claim that they know the Father, that they have the Father, but they deny that Jesus is the resurrected Christ, John says they don't have him. Whoever confesses the Son also has the Father. Then chapter 4, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So on both sides of our text that deals with lawlessness, it is within the context of what? The last days, Antichrist, And therefore, it is the denial that Jesus actually is the resurrected Christ. And anyone who denies the apostolic gospel that Jesus is the resurrected Christ, according to John, is what? Antichrist. So this confirms, this settles the idea of how John is using lawless 
nests in this text here. It's, it's not a, a breaking of the Mosaic law. It's not the breaking of the law. You know what it is? It's rebellion. It's rebellion against Christ as the resurrected Messiah. It is to say, he is not the Christ. He did not raise from the dead. He is not the way to the Father. To know him is not to know the Father. You can know the Father without him. That is rebellion. That is lawlessness. So let's go back and read verses 4 through 6 again. So this, this rejection of Christ as the Messiah aligns with the Antichrist. You see that? This rejection of Christ as the resurrected Messiah aligns with the Antichrist. Look at verse 4. Everyone who is practicing, and then we're in the weeds, the Greek has the definite article. Everyone who is practicing the sin. The sin. Also commits, and then there's the definite article, the rebellion. Everyone who is practicing the sin also commits the rebellion. You know that he appeared to take away, definite article, the sins. And in him there is no sin, there is no rebellion. Therefore, no one who abides in Christ rebels. And in the context here, rebelling is against who? It's against Christ. So no one who abides in Christ, no one who believes in Christ, no one who trusts in Christ as the resurrected Messiah rebels against him as the resurrected Messiah and says, nope, that's not what he is. I reject that. It's not the way it works. If you are believing in Jesus, you are accepting him as the resurrected Christ. So, when John says the sin and the rebellion, that the sin is the rebellion, that governs the rest of the paragraph. So he's not going to, John's not going to have a very particular understanding, very specific understanding of what the sin is, the rebellion is. He's not going to have that and then immediately switch into talking about sin in general. So that's because it has the definite article, it's going to carry us through the entirety of the paragraph into verse 10. So look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Who's the ones that have been trying to deceive them? The secessionist, the deconversionist. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices, and here we have the definite article again, the righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever does the righteous deed, who aligns himself in a certain way with righteousness, with the one who is righteous, the one who, who's, whose confession aligns with the one who is righteous, he says, that is the one who is Righteous. So the, the righteousness is in direct contact, a contrast with the rebellion, the sin. 
So in, in John's letter, here's how we need to understand righteousness. The righteousness is right doing that aligns with what the apostolic gospel has revealed about Christ. And who is he? Who is he? He's the one that dealt with your sin and has been raised from the dead, who has ascended to the Father and is now your advocate. But John, even though John doesn't refer to the law, he does refer to God's commandment. Look at uh, God's commandment and will. John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the secessionists went out to the world, left the church, went out to the world. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God remains, abides, remains forever. So in John's letter, what is the will of God? Whoever does the will of God abides forever. John, what is the will of God in your understanding in this letter? Look at chapter 3, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask from him, because we keep his commandments, so there's his will, because we keep what keep his commandments and do what, he, do what pleases him. Verse 23, and this is his commandment. What is it? That we believe in the name of the son, of his son, Jesus Christ. So what does the father command? It's very, it's very clear. Believe in the name of his son who happens to be Jesus, the resurrected Messiah. That's the Father's commandment, which is not burdensome. For you, heritage, that command is not burdensome. And then he adds, look what he adds. And love one another, just as Christ commanded us. What do you think in the context here, loving one another, other believers, means? It means you don't deceive them that you can know the Father without Christ. That's what it means. These deconversionists are not loving the church. They're trying their best to deceive the church. They do not believe that Jesus is the Christ and because of that, it spills over into how they relate to people within the visible church by trying to deceive them to believe what they believe. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments, we know what the commandments are here, right? Believe in Jesus the Messiah and love the brothers. 
Whoever keeps his commandments abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now let's go back to verse, go back to verse 8. So let's read this, see how this helps us understand what's going on here. Whoever practices the sin of the devil, the sin is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning, rebelling from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to spread this rebellion. No one born of God makes a practice of this kind of sinning. Just doesn't. Doesn't rebel against Christ. Doesn't reject Christ as the Messiah. Just doesn't happen. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning. He is not able to rebel. He is not able to reject Christ. He just can't do it because God's seed is in him and he's been born of God. You see it? Verse 10, by this, it is obvious who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness does not align with the command to believe in Jesus as Jesus the Christ and to love the brothers is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So that's peg two. We'll go through the next two more quickly. Peg two, peg, that's peg one. Peg two, confident, confident. Look at verse 28, 228. And now, little children, abide or remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he, the Father, is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices that righteousness has been born of him, of the Father. So, John's already tipped his hand as to who's passed that they passed this test. He says, little, little children, continue in Christ. Continue receiving and believing the apostolic gospel. Do not turn from the apostolic gospel of the resurrected Christ because that's what it means to remain in him. That's why we gather. We gather because we are remaining in the apostolic and under the apostolic gospel of the resurrected Christ. So John says, little children continue in that gospel. That's what it means to remain in him. Why, John? Why should we continue in the apostolic gospel? Why? Verse 28, so that when he appears we may have what? Confidence. And not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Jesus appeared after the resurrection to his disciples and he will appear again. And John doesn't doubt that this church will remain. made it clear that he's writing to them, chapter 2, verse 12, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So he's certain that they know the Father. So what is 
What is John basically saying in verse 28? He's, he's saying, don't allow those who have abandoned the gospel and the visible church to deceive you. Remain in the church that confesses the apostolic gospel, that believes, that preaches the apostolic gospel, that believes in the resurrected Christ and his revealing of the Father, that confesses sin, so that when he appears, you may have confidence. Who do you think in the context here are the ones who shrink back? The deconversionists, the secessionists. They are the counterfeits. Now, some of you may be sitting there and you're thinking, okay, I get that, I understand that, it makes sense, it helps. But when I think of Christ returning, I still do not personally, personally feel confident. So I'm, I'm, I'm certain there's, there's individuals in here who are feeling and thinking that way right now. Yeah, th- this makes sense. This makes sense. But when I think of Christ returning, I just can't see myself being confident that he's coming for me, for me, not against me. So answer, if that's you, answer me this question. Who is Jesus for you right now? Who is Jesus for you this very second? Even when you sin. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, Well, He is your advocate with the Father. So, if Christ is your advocate now, do you really think that when He returns... He is going to become your adversary. Advocate now, but when he comes, no, no more advocacy. He's adversary. Do you really think that Jesus is going, for you, is going to transform from your advocate into your adversary when he returns? Answer, No, no, he's the same yesterday, today, and finish it, forever. So he he is your advocate right now. What else? His blood is cleansing you from all sin, chapter 1, verse 7. So do you really believe that his blood is cleansing you from all sin right now, But once he returns, nope. My blood does not avail for you anymore. Right now is all you get. When I come, no more blood availing for you. Those wounds 
will no longer be visible. It's not the way it works. If his blood avails for you now, when he returns, his blood will avail for you. Confident. 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 Thirdly, cherished. Cherished. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. So this is why, this is why he, he launches into this right here because of the way he's talking, the way he's thinking. He's not, he's not schizophrenic. He's not moving back and forth to, do you know him or don't you know him? You know him one minute, guess what? Give me a second. You're not going to be confident that you know him. It's not the way it works. Look how he begins chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. The deconversionists, the secessionists, Do not know us because they don't know the Father. They don't know Christ. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when he appears, we shall, beloved, be like him. Because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes purifies himself, even as he is pure. In John 1, 1, John's Gospel, he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, yes. And the Word was God. And then John 1.14 says, And that Word became flesh. And tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth when the son became man He revealed the Father by his very presence. John chapter 2, Jesus clears the temple, and the Jews say, What gives you the right to act like this? And in verse 19, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus says, I am the temple. When, when Jesus was walking the earth, so what is, what is the temple in Scripture? The temple represented the one place on earth where God and man met. The only place on earth where God and man met. And John tells us Jesus is the temple. He is, he's the one place on earth. So when Jesus is walking on earth, Jesus was the one place on earth where God and man met perfectly, wonderfully, where God and man communed together, where in a man was a perfect loving of the father with all that is within his, with all that was in his heart who loved the father with all of his strength when jesus walked the earth you had someone who was eating and drinking and sleeping who was wearing sandals and that man that was walking the earth was enjoying communion with the Father like the eternal Son had for all of eternity past. What he had then was now being fleshed out on earth wherever he went. Jesus became the very place where communion with the Father happened. And even now, even now, as our advocate who is with the Father, even now, he remains in perfect, loving communion with his Father. So if in John's Gospel... And when Jesus prays the high priestly prayer, he, he, wants, he wants us to see his glory. The glory which he had before the foundation of the world. And then he tells us what it is. Th- that you loved me. That's my glory. My glory is that you, Father, love me. That's John's theology. So you get to chapter 1 John 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. Malachi 4, verses 1 and 2. 
Malachi writes, For behold, the, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. All the rebellious will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But, but, for you who fear my name, for you who believe my gospel, the Son, S-U-N, I love the imagery here, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out like leaping, leaping like calves from the stall. Imagine, imagine someone, a child who grows up in a dystopian future. And they've never seen a sunrise. All they've known is darkness underground. And suddenly, for the first time in his life, in his 30s, and they can now go above ground. And he's going to see his first sunrise. And as he's standing out, looking at the horizon, at darkness, and he stares, eventually that little red-orange sun is going to peek over the horizon. And he's going to be amazed. He's going to be amazed. It's an amazing view right there. That's it. But he, he sees the sun, but he doesn't really know what he's about to see, right? So if that sun just froze right there for the next 10 years, you know what he would be going? Every, every morning he'd go out and he'd go, wow, look at that. I've never seen anything like that before. And there it hangs, just right there. He would be amazed to get up every day, go outside, and look at that little yellow-orange dot just peeking above the horizon. He, he sees the sun, but he does not comprehend what is about to be revealed. Because you see the sun when it does that? As it starts to go up higher, and it's rising over the horizon, you see it almost has wings as those as the light then spreads out along the globe it looks like the sun is rising and it has wings and when the sun rises do you know what it brings to creation light that heals light that heals all that see the sun and its healing rays grow. All grows. What we see of Christ right now, we know the Father. We know Jesus who reveals the Father. And what we see of the S-O-N, S-O-N is truly the S-O-N. And we are, because of that S-O-N, we are children of God now.
but what we shall be has not yet been revealed. But when that sun breaks the horizon and goes to the noonday sky, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That is not terrifying. That is a hope that is as sure as the resurrection of Christ himself. And when he reveals the Father on that day, that day will be the Father's day of all Father's days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel that you have given to us and that we declare and sing and pray over every week. We thank you for your goodness to us and you have given us your son now, but one day we will see him as he is and we shall be like him. And so strengthen us in that hope and whoever has that hope purifies himself. Strengthen us now in that good word And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.